Well, let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer today. Then we're going to turn to the beginning of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We've been looking at the introduction to this epistle. Uh, it is a brief letter, but as we've seen over the course of the past couple of weeks, it is packed full of deep theology, and we're going to see that that is uh, particularly true today as we come to this great subject of the perseverance of the saints. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So yes, we are in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It was one of Paul's prison epistles. We said that he was imprisoned in Rome at the time that he wrote this letter. This was probably his first imprisonment. Most scholars now hold to the idea that Paul was imprisoned in Rome for two periods. The first period was a relatively brief time. It was a house arrest, and then Paul was released. And then after the burning of Rome, um, the emperor Nero began to clamp down hard on the Christians. And uh, Paul was brought back to Rome and incarcerated in a place called the Mamertine Jail, which was a miserable rat-infested pit. Uh, it was an abandoned cistern, actually, that Paul was imprisoned in. He did not have the freedom that he had had on his previous imprisonment, that house arrest. And eventually, Paul was um, executed, along with many other Christians, on the main avenue outside of Rome on the Ostian Way. But this was his first imprisonment, and of course, Paul didn't know at that point that he was writing this letter what the outcome was going to be. He didn't know that he was going to be released and have the opportunity to have a, a period of brief freedom. Um, for all he knew, he could very well have been executed. He had appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, and so that's what he was waiting uh, for his trial before the emperor when he wrote this letter. And yet, in spite of the circumstances, we said this is a letter that is filled with confidence and hope. It's been sometimes referred to as Paul's ode to joy. And what we want to discover here is what is the secret to his joy? It's a great letter, and it's our privilege to be able to study it. Well, turn, if you will, to chapter one. We looked at the first two verses over the course of the past few weeks. Now we're going to turn to verses three through eight today, where Paul specifically addresses the Philippian congregation. And here's what he says, verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say this, we might as well just go ahead and read verses 9 through 11, because we may, we may, don't, don't hold me to this, but we may get to these verses as well. And he writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul uh, is giving thanks at the beginning of this letter. This is customary of Paul. He is grateful to the Philippians. Of course, we said that in many respects, this is a thank you note that Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's going to encourage them. Being their father in the faith, he's going to offer them some words of advice and some counsel. But this is also a thank you note. Paul is thanking the Philippians for the fact that they had remembered him in his imprisonment. We said that many people had forgotten Paul in spite of the fact that he had been this great force in their lives. We know how it is. People get on with their lives, and Paul had been carried off into Rome, and he had been out of the picture for some time, and people had pretty much forgotten about him. But the Philippian church had not. Uh, they had sent a gift to Paul, and they reminded him that he was not forgotten. He had not been forsaken by those he loved, and that was a great encouragement to him. And so he was writing this letter to thank them for that. 
But he's not just thanking the Philippians, he's also thanking God. Because he knows that even if human beings have a tendency to be unfaithful and forgetful, God is not like that. God remembers those who are afflicted. He remembers those who are in prison. And so he gives thanks here at the beginning of this epistle, yes, for the Philippians, but also for the faithfulness of God as well. And here's what he said in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first thing that Paul was thankful to God for was the partnership that he shared in the gospel, in the good news with the Philippian church. Now, the word that is translated here as partnership, we looked at it briefly last week, is the Greek word koinonia. It literally means fellowship. It is that which they hold in common. Uh, Paul came from a very diverse world, and the Gentile churches in the first century were very diverse congregations. They were great melting pots. And in that day, there were great walls of division that existed between Greeks and Romans, Gentiles and Jews, and so forth. And yet what Paul had discovered is that even though there were great differences, even though there were dividing walls of hostility, as he describes them elsewhere, those dividing walls of hostility had come down as a result of the power of the gospel. And these people, even though they came from diverse backgrounds, what they had come to realize is that that which they held in common, and that's what that word koinonia means, in common, in fellowship, that which, would they, which they held in common was far greater than anything that might otherwise divide them. And so that's the first thing that he's thankful for. He thanks God for the fact that despite the fact that they come from different backgrounds and different places, nevertheless, the thing that unites them is this partnership, this fellowship that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was that gospel that had saved Paul as a Jew, and it was that gospel that had saved the Philippians as Gentiles. And it was that which was the glue that, that held them together. It was the bond that they shared, and so he's very grateful for that. But he's also thankful for something else, and that's what I want to concentrate on here as we begin today's study. In verse 6, he says, I am thankful also and confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul rejoices in the fellowship that he shares with the Philippians, but he's also grateful to God that God is faithful, that God always finishes what he has started. This is Paul's way of saying that whatever was happening in the life of the Philippian church, its very existence was not the result of his efforts or his strivings, or it wasn't the result of anything that the Philippians themselves had done. It was the result of God being at work. God started the work in the church in Philippi and in the lives of those individual believers, and because God always finishes what he starts, Paul rejoices that this was a work in progress with these individuals, but God was going to see it through. And it was as though Paul was standing on tiptoe. He was so excited to see what God was going to do in the lives of these people. Uh, this is what theologians sometimes refer to as the doctrine of perseverance, or the perseverance of the saints. And it's a very important biblical doctrine. Now, I'm going to say right at the beginning that this is difficult, and there are certain aspects of this Christian doctrine that many people may find troubling. But what I would ask is that you just hold on with me, and by the time we get to the end of it, hopefully what you will see is that this is a wonderful and encouraging doctrine. So let's start by keeping your finger there in Philippians and turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 24. Now, we just concluded a study of Matthew's gospel, but it's been some time since we were in Matthew chapter 24. So I encourage you to go back to the 24th chapter of Matthew. Jesus has entered Jerusalem by this point, and he is speaking to the disciples about what they can expect to see and experience. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 24. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation. 
Jesus is telling his disciples that in the, in the final days, there's going to be a time of great difficulty. And he says, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. Jesus knew this was going to be the case with his disciples because it had been the case with himself. He knew that as he had been mistreated and hated and despised by the world, so his followers were going to be hated and despised as well. And he wanted to get them prepared for that. And so he's very clear. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, he says, many will fall away. In other words, the love of some is going to grow cold. They're going to lose that initial ardor that they had. And they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But then he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus acknowledges right there in Matthew chapter 24 that in times of difficulty, in times of persecution, and incidentally, that is inevitable. We need to understand as Christians that simply because we follow Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. It's not going to be saltness, salt and light. Uh, come and hear the sermon this Sunday. We're going to talk about this very fact. We're going to take a look at Romans chapter 8, but this is one of the things that Paul establishes right there in that eighth chapter of Romans, which many consider to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Paul nevertheless acknowledges the fact that there are going to become times of difficulty and hardship and persecution. Now, he assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, but he doesn't deny the fact that that is part of what it means to be human and live in this world. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 24 is that in the midst of that, many people are going to fall away. Many people are going to renounce the faith. Many people's love is going to grow cold. They're going to betray each other. But he says, those who persevere to the end are the ones who are going to be saved. Now, if you have any sense of your own weakness, any sense of your own fallenness, any sense of your own sin, that statement can be a little disconcerting. Because we may wonder to ourselves, will I persevere? When, when the persecution comes my way, will I persevere to the end? Because Jesus said it's only those who actually persevere who are saved. So what about us? Well, this, as I said, is what is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And what Paul wants us to understand is that, yes, only those who persevere to the end will be saved, but those who belong to Christ will persevere. And they will persevere. Why? Not because of their own strength, not because they have the ability to persevere, but because God the Holy Spirit resides within them and gives them the supernatural grace to persevere. That's why Paul speaks of God finishing what he starts. He wants us to understand that the work of salvation is not the work of men and women. It's not the work of the individual. Salvation is the work of God. It is an act of his grace. Remember, that is what Paul talks about here in this introduction. He speaks of the grace of God in verse 2. And that is a grace that precedes and follows. And so this is the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere to the end because God perseveres within them. This is the fifth point of what is known as Reformed theology. And I just want to take a look at the five points of Reformed theology. We call it Reformed theology. That's really a misnomer. It's really biblical theology. But if you want to remember these five points, as they're sometimes referred to, just think of the word tulip. The letters of that word stand for each of these five points. So let's just take a look at them for a moment. The T stands for total depravity. What that means is that you and I, the Bible says, are sinners. The scriptures are very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. 
So all have sinned without exception. And what the doctrine of total depravity teaches is that there is not an aspect of our being, not a single aspect of our life that is untouched by the effect of sin. Our minds, our wills, our desires, our affections, every aspect of our life is somehow tainted by sin. Now, understand, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. All right? The, total depravity does not mean we're as bad as we can possibly be. That's what utter depravity means. So there are still sparks of the imago dei, the image of God in each and every one of us. We're still capable of great good, but at the same time, we are capable of great evil. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is turn back the pages of history to the 1930s or the 1940s, and you can see the terrible things that were done by the Nazis or by the Soviets. The terrible things that were done, the masses of people that were, were just killed for no reason except human ignorance and human prejudice. So what the doctrine of total depravity teaches is that we are all sinners. We're not as bad as we could possibly be, but there's not an aspect of our being that is untouched by sin. And because the wages of sin is death, that's what we all deserve. In fact, Paul would go so far as to say that is exactly what we've experienced. We are not merely sick in our sin. Sometimes we sing of being sin-sick and sorrow-worn, but what Paul would say is that it's much worse than that. We're not merely sick, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We're going to take a look at Ephesians 2 in just a moment. But Paul says the situation is grave, literally and figuratively. And what that means is that you and I cannot save ourselves. God has to act on our behalf. God has to act to make those who were dead alive again, and that's what's meant by unconditional election. There's nothing in us that God sees that is good that says, well, that person deserves to be saved. It is all a matter of His grace. God loved us while we were yet sinners. So that's the second point unconditional election. Here's the third one, limited atonement. Now, what this means is that Jesus' death upon the cross actually saved some. Now, when we say that Jesus' death on the cross was a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, we mean just that. His death upon the cross was sufficient for every sin ever committed. But clearly the Bible teaches that not everybody is going to be saved. Jesus himself acknowledged that. He says only those who persevere to the end will be saved. Well, what about those who don't? What limited atonement teaches is that those who believe in Christ are actually saved. They are actually saved by his atoning death. Here's the fourth point, irresistible grace. That when God's grace comes into your life, it is supernatural, and we cannot resist it. That's why being saved by grace is so important, because it is the work of God. And because it is the work of God at the very beginning, it is the work of God the whole way to the end. And this is the final point, the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. Why? Because, yes, they are totally depraved, but God has chosen them, he has called them. He has offered his son as a sacrifice for them. And because God has done all of this, he will finish what he has started. Now, we're going to flesh this out in, in just the next few minutes. But I want you to understand that's what Paul is teaching here at the beginning, this perseverance of the saints, that they will persevere to the end. What Paul wants us to understand is that salvation— is not in any way a human feat. What is it that you and I contribute to our salvation? What portion of our salvation are we responsible for? Paul would say that the work of salvation is the work of God alone. There is nothing, this is what one of the archbishops of Canterbury once said, 
William Temple. He said, there is nothing that you and I contribute to our salvation save the sin from which we need to be redeemed. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, Paul saying, I am confident that God will finish what he has started. What he is basically saying is that salvation is the work of God from start to finish, from stem to stern. This reminds us that grace precedes faith. Grace always precedes faith. Paul in Ephesians 2 says you are saved by grace through faith. And what this also means is that faith follows new birth. Now, that's a different order than we are accustomed to hearing. We normally think if we have faith, we'll be reborn. But actually, because the work of salvation is the work of God from start to finish, faith actually follows new birth. The new birth precedes faith. Grace precedes faith, and faith follows the new birth. Now, this may be, for some people, rather troubling and challenging, because this is not the way we generally think. But what I want to show you is that this is exactly what the Bible teaches. And furthermore, I think what most of us will discover when we look back on our own conversion is that this is actually the way it works. We may think that we're choosing God, but what we will discover as we look back over the course of our lives is that God has been working since time immemorial, from the beginning of our lives, to so carefully choreograph and orchestrate things that we are brought to the point where we could hardly have done anything else. And this is how C.S. Lewis described his own conversion. I think it's a wonderful thing, those of you who are familiar with the life of C.S. Lewis, you know that Lewis started off as an atheist, and uh, he became interested in the Christian things, uh, largely through the influence of some of his friends, not the least of which was J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the famous Lord of the Rings series. And Lewis admits that he was reluctant to embrace Christianity because he knew that if he did, it would be a great change in his life, and he wasn't necessarily convinced that he was ready for that kind of a change. But this is how he describes a portion of his own conversion. I think it's a wonderful way, as only Lewis can do it. He said, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, now right there, he's, he's just describing his own conversion, and he describes God closing in on him. He doesn't describe it as him going and searching for God, but rather God closing in on him. He said, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was, in fact, offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. In a sense, I was um, not at all compelled, he says. I was heading up Headington Hill on the top of the bus without words and, I think, without images, without any idea whatsoever. And he said, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something else. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. Now, that's the way most of us think of it, isn't it? Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts, and we can either open the door or we can keep the door shut. And that's the way Lewis felt. He said, I was going up up Headington Hill on the top of a bus, one of those double-decker buses that you see in England. And he said, I was on the top of this bus, and as I was just going along, all of a sudden I felt as though this choice was presented to me. I was, I was like a lobster. I was, I was locked in, and I could unlock the armor, or I could keep it on. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door. I could keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor, or I could keep it on. Neither choice was presented as either a threat or a promise, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything at all. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. Now, many of you as you look back at the time of your conversion, 
you can remember a moment when you too were presented with what appeared to be a wholly free choice. Where you were told that Jesus was, in a sense, knocking at the door of your heart, and you could open the door, you could keep that door shut. You could unlock the armor that you were in, or you could keep it on and keep God out. Oftentimes, that's the way we speak of our conversion. I speak of my own conversion in that way. But look at how, Luther, how Lewis puts it. He says, I say I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein, yet it did not really seem possible for me to do the opposite. Now, there you have it. It's that last sentence that is so telling. Lewis describes his conversion in terms of what he did, opening the door, unlocking the armor. He said, I chose to do it, and yet... As I look back over the course of my life and all of the circumstances, I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible for me to do anything else. That's what Paul means by God's grace preceding. When we look back over the course of our lives, yes, we may say we chose Christ, but we realize that God had been orchestrating everything, bringing us to that point where we would choose his grace precedes as well as follows our choice. Now, this may seem somewhat troubling to some people. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And I don't want to go into that too greatly today, although we're going to look at some of that. And that is troubling to some people. But actually, what I want you to understand is that God's grace preceding our salvation, God bringing us to this point where we choose him, and yet there doesn't appear to have been anything else we could have done, this actually should be greatly encouraging to us. The fact that God works in our lives to make us persevere is a great encouragement. Why? Because humans have a tendency not to persevere. Have you ever known that in your own life? You start a book, and you never finish it. You start a project, and you never finish it. We've all seen derelict buildings that people started to build. They never finished them. This was one of the most shocking things when I made my first trip to Israel. We flew into Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv is a very modern city. And I remember going through that city and all these magnificent new buildings, but I saw so many buildings that somebody had started and then they ran out of money and they didn't finish it. That's the way human beings are. We frequently start things, but then we fail to follow through. But what Paul is saying is that that's not the way it is with God. God starts something and he finishes it. And that is a great encouragement to us because if God starts our salvation, then what that means is that God is going to finish our salvation and there is nothing, nothing that is going to interfere with that. Now, let me show you practically why that's good news. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn, if you will, to John's gospel, to John chapter 10. Now, this doctrine is actually taught all throughout Scripture. We don't oftentimes recognize it because it's subtle, but it's there. In John chapter 10, beginning at verse 27, Jesus is speaking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, that's a wonderful statement, that if you belong to Christ, you are a sheep of his flock, and he is the good shepherd, and he will protect you. But how did you become a member of his flock? Well, this is what he says in verse 19, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, it's a subtle thing, but Jesus makes it very clear. If you are a sheep of his flock, then he is your shepherd, and he will protect you. But how did you become a member of Christ's flock? You know, sheep have a tendency to go astray. Did we just wander into the fold? No, he says, the Father put you there. Now, here's how Paul puts it in Romans. Turn, if you will, to Romans. Romans chapter 8 is the great chapter 
on eternal security. That's what I'm going to be preaching on this Sunday at St. Philip, so you can tune in if you're interested. It's one of the most encouraging chapters, if not the most encouraging chapter in the entire Bible. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and following. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at verse 37. No. This is one of those great passages. We read it at funerals because it's a, a message filled with encouragement and hope. What can separate us from the love of God? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that is a wonderful message, but here's the question. How do we know that? How do we know? that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. How do we know that we're not going to mess things up and by our own sin separate ourselves from the love of God? Well, here's how Paul answers. If you go back a few verses to verse 29, Paul says, because it's not your work. It's God's work. Look at verse 29 that precedes these wonderful words that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in those verses, who is doing all the work? Who does the predestining? God does. Who does the calling? God does. Who does the justifying? God does. And who does the glorifying? God does. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And because it's the work of God from start to finish, then Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, the confidence that we have that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ is all predicated on the fact that the work of salvation is not the work of men or women. It is the work of God. Now, oftentimes, that's not the way we think of it. As I said, we think of our choosing God, not God choosing us. But when you actually stop and consider it, we realize that the work of salvation must be the work of God alone. And let me suggest to you why that is true. First of all, the work of salvation has to be the work of God alone and not the work of human beings because of the sin nature within us. Paul in Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there's no one righteous, no, not one. And furthermore, the wages of sin are death. So we're all sinners, and the wages, the consequence of death is, of sin is what? It is death. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, which... I think is one of the great chapters in the entire Bible. I've sometimes said that my favorite book of the Bible is the one that I happen to be studying at that particular moment. But probably Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible. It's a small book, but it is really a crash course in theology, a theology that's centered on the life of the church. And I want you to notice how Paul describes the human condition in Ephesians chapter 2. This is deep stuff. 
He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, just stop there at verse 3. What does Paul say? He's describing the lot of the Ephesians prior to the grace of God. But it's not just a description of the Ephesians. It's a description of you and me. What has he said? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Paul doesn't say we're sick. You know, when someone is sick, even gravely ill, as long as there is breath in the body, as long as there is brain activity, there is the chance, be it ever so small, there is nevertheless the chance that somebody might possibly, just possibly recover, right? But when they are dead, what hope is there? Ask yourself, how much good can a dead person do? I've sometimes only half-jokingly said that when I'm working through a sermon or through a class, I will go out for a walk. And in the two parishes that I've served recently, St. Helena's in Beaufort and St. Philip's here in Charleston, both of those churches have a churchyard around them, a cemetery, a graveyard. And I will sometimes go out there and, and uh, in the afternoon and preach my sermon. And I have preached some long and, you know, well-crafted sermons, at least I think so. But I can tell you, never once has anyone in that graveyard ever responded to the message. And do you know why? Because they're dead. And a dead person cannot respond. A dead person cannot hear. A dead person cannot accept the good news. Now, there's nothing wrong with the message and not necessarily anything wrong with the messenger. The problem is that the person is dead. It's a, it's a spiritual picture of what we have physically with Lazarus. You'll recall that when Lazarus died in John's gospel, his sisters, we're told, Mary and Martha, and that great company of people who'd come from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother, they were all standing outside the tomb weeping and wailing. And somebody may very well have cried out to Lazarus, oh, Lazarus, come back to us. But he never did. And do you know why he never did? Because he was dead. <laughs> and dead people cannot respond. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And because you were spiritually dead but physically alive, oh, yes, you were walking around but you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirits now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were following the world, the flesh, and the devil. He said, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And as a result, we were, here is one of the most astonishing statements of all. We were all by nature children of wrath. Now, you'll hear people say, well, aren't we all God's children? I want you to understand something. The Bible does not teach that we are all God's children. Just by virtue of your inclusion in the human race, the Scripture does not teach that we are all God's children. Now, it does teach that we are all God's creatures. We are all made in the image of God. We are image bearers. And every human life is of value and significance. But you only become a child of God by adoption. Look at the beginning of John's gospel. John says he came to that which was his own, that is, the Jewish people, but his own received them not. But to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of a father's desire or the will of the flesh, but children born of God. Let me tell you something. You don't automatically become a child of God by virtue of your inclusion in the human race. You only become a child of God by adoption. So what Paul is saying is, 
what we really are by nature is children of wrath. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We're spiritually dead. We're physically alive, following the ways of the world. And as a result, we're under God's wrath. If we're children of anything at all, we're children of judgment. Now, that is a pretty pitiful picture of the human condition. But Paul is very clear. That's what we were. But there's that wonderful word, but. Look at verse 4. But God. Listen, if you're writing in your Bibles, underline those two words, but God. It is a bleak picture. It's a dismal depiction. And yet Paul says, God, but God, being rich in what? In mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. That's critical. When did God love us? Even when we were dead dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Again, going back to that image of Lazarus in the tomb, Mary, Martha, crying out to their brother to come out of the tomb. He could not do it. He could not do it because he was dead. The only way he could respond to their calls is if a miracle occurred. If Jesus Christ came and made the one who was dead alive again. Once he was made alive, then and only then could he respond to their cries. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. Well, Paul is saying that what was true of Lazarus physically is true of us spiritually. You and I start off spiritually dead, not alive, dead, dead in our trespasses and in our sins and children of wrath. But God, who's rich in mercy, loves us even when we're dead, and he makes us alive again. He calls us out of the tomb, as it were. And that's why Paul says, by grace you have been saved. What is grace? God's undeserved, unearned favor. Why is it grace? Because we were dead. There's nothing we contribute to this. God makes us alive. And even uses the language of resurrection here in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So why must salvation be the work of God alone? Because of the sin nature within us, which kills us. Because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and dead people can't do anything good. And here's the third reason why. Because let's be honest. We would never have chosen God had God not chosen us. Now, we like to think that we would have chosen God. But let's be honest, if we all start off with a sin nature, what that means is that we're all going our own way. We're all doing our own thing. And unless God intervenes in our lives in a miraculous and strange way, there's no hope. We'll continue doing our own thing, going our own way. Our hearts will continue to harden toward him. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, even when we were dead. And it's because God started the work and God finishes the work, we know that nothing, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, that's what Paul is talking about. So if you're a Christian today, this should be a great encouragement to you. If you are somebody who has embraced Jesus Christ, received Christ as your Lord and Savior, yes, it may appear as though you received Christ. That's the language that we use. But like C.S. Lewis, if you look back over the course of your life, what you'll realize is that God's grace preceded even your choice. God was working to make you alive even when you were dead. And because God was at work in your life, and you have made your calling and election sure, that's what the New Testament speaks of, making your calling and election sure by embracing Christ, because that has happened, what you can rest assured of is that nothing, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. Why? Because your salvation is not your work, it's God's work. 
That's why Paul says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Who can condemn? No one. Who can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, hardship, peril, sword, nothing. And that's what he rejoices in here at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians. He said, I rejoice that God has started a work in you. And because God always finishes what he starts, it's not true of human beings, but it certainly is true of us. Because God always finish was, finishes what he starts, I rejoice. I'm standing on tiptoe, Paul says, to see what God is going to do in your lives. For this reason, my friends, Christians should be eternal optimists. Regardless of what's going on in the world around you, regardless of what even is going on in your family or in your own personal life, you can rest assured that what God has started in you, he will finish. No matter how long it takes. Now that brings us to verses 9 and following. So turn, if you will, back to Philippians if you're elsewhere. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And Paul says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul tells us that the work of salvation was started by God, and the work of salvation will be finished by God. And what does the finished product look like? Paul says it looks like a fruitful life. It looks like a fruitful life. Paul gives thanks for the Philippians in his prayer, and then he asks for something of the Philippians in prayer, or for the Philippians in prayer. What does he ask for? That they might live the good life. He says, I thank God everywhere in this prayer of mine because of your partnership in the gospel, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more until you are filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul says, I know that God started a good work in you, and he's going to continue that work, and he's going to complete that work that you might live the good life. Now, what do we mean by the good life? Well, when we think of the good life in Western culture today, and in America today. Basically, what we mean is being able to do whatever you want. The good life is, is, is being happy, healthy, prosperous. That's what we think of. I think about it with young people today. Uh, so many parents are so concerned about their children having all of the advantages that are available in the culture. They want to make sure that they go to a good school so that they get a good education, so that they get good SAT or ACT scores, so that they get into a good college or university, so that they can get a good degree, so that they can get a good job, so that they can what? Live the good life. And what's the good life? The ability to live the kind of life that you want, to have all of the creature comforts that the culture can afford. But when Paul talks about the good life, that's not what he means. Paul knows you can have everything that the world affords, everything that money can buy, and still be miserable. Now, when Paul talks about living the good life, God producing the good life, what he means is the godly life. Paul wants us to remember that we've been saved from something, yes, from sin and death, but we've also been saved for something. For what? For good works. I think it's very interesting. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment, Paul talks about being dead in our trespasses and in our sins, God making us alive, but making us alive for what purpose? He says it. We're all familiar with verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
There it is. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. See, Paul is making it very clear. Your work of salvation is not your work. It is God's work. God does it all. It is by grace that you've been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God not only saved us from something, he said he saved us for something. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's saying to the Philippians, God has started a work in you. He's going to see it through to completion. And what that completed life looks like is a good life. It is a holy life. It is a life in which you are salt in a bland world and light in a darkened environment. Now, what he goes on to do, we don't have time to look at it today. We'll look at it next week. What he goes on to do is to tell us how this fruitful life is actually produced, how God produces a fruitful life, the good life in an individual man or woman. So we'll take a look at that next week. If you want to live a fruitful life, a good life, a life that is pleasing to God, which is why he saved us in the first place, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he's going to go on to tell us how God does that next week in the verses that we'll look at. Now, we've got a couple of minutes, um, about five minutes. That's rare. Um, but I realize that the subject that I have discussed today can be a little confusing to some people. And so I want to give you the opportunity, if you would like, to go ahead and ask any questions that you may have. So, um, Rachel, however you want to do this, if, if people want to ask questions um, or if you want to go ahead and type in your question, you're welcome to do that. We've got about five minutes to do that, and I'll answer as many questions as I possibly can. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, to put in questions, you can chat, like Jeff said. Um, you all have the ability to unmute yourself if you'd like. You can do that or raise your hand on the screen and I'll unmute you. All that good stuff. That will work. All those options work well. Okay. All right. I've got Charlene and I saw Martha as well. So let me unmute Charlene here first. Go for it. I just wanted Jeff to say something. I've heard him talk about this before, about the doctrine of election versus evangelism. In other words, oh, if you're not, you know, if you're chosen, I know that the Baptists have had a lot of trouble with this because they stopped sending missionaries at some point, or one of the ministers we knew said that because of the if they're not chosen, God will figure, God will pull them in. So can you talk about that and evangelism? Yeah. yeah. I think the feeling that some people have is that, can we, okay, great. We had a bit of an echo there. I'm sorry. I think the feeling that some people have is that, yes, well, if God's going to save them, he's going to save them anyway. So why should we worry about I want to suggest two things to you. First of all, go back, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, to those verses that we looked at. And let me say this. One of the reasons we do things is because God commands us to do them. God commands us to go out and share the good news. So one reason we do evangelism is because God calls us to do it. Whether we understand how it works or not is irrelevant. There is a sense in which if Jesus is going to be the Lord of our life, we have to follow his commandments. But there is a practical side of this as well. Again, if you go to Romans chapter 8 and look at what Paul says, he says, and those whom he called, he justified. How is it that God calls an individual? So the same Paul who is a champion of the doctrine of election. And this is particularly true in Romans 9 through 11, where he really fleshes this out with good legal reasoning, Paul being a, a legal scholar, as it were. 
one of the things that he also does is he says that we are being sent out. Paul was the great evangelist. He knew that the means by which God called his elect was by the preaching of the word. So while we say that God appoints the ends, we have to also realize that God appoints the means. And the means that he has appointed is the preaching of the word. It is the means by which he calls those he has chosen. So it's not fair to say that God, if he's going to save them, is going to save them anyway. No, it's not. He's going to save them a specific way through the preaching of the word. And, and that's why the scripture says, and Paul reiterates this as well, how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? So while we say it that way, well, if God's going to save them, he's going to save them anyway. That's not true. He's not going to save them anyway. He's going to save them this way, through the folly of the word preached. Answer your question? Okay, very good. All right. Martha? You have to unmute yourself, Martha. This is related to that question. Okay. Which is um, the, the whole idea of the Arminian versus the Reformers. Yeah. And I grew up Baptist, and and I don't, I'm not good with all this, but my understanding is Arminianism really is eventually went to the Baptist sort of versus, you know, the Reformers were uh, Presbyterians and some others. And so what would you say would be the contrast to the to that belief? I mean, my understanding is, is that it would mean that we have, we are able to choose or we, we begin the process of salvation and then God segues in with that. So do you know, do you understand sort of what I'm asking? Yeah, well, let me try to, to answer the question. Um, for those of you, she's speaking about Arminianism and Calvinism, basically, I think, are the, the, the two yeah. that are often contrasted with each other. Um, Arminianism is a view that was held by a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. And basically what Arminius said was that you and I have free will, and we choose God. The gospel is proclaimed, and we choose to either accept it or reject it. Calvinism, and it's really a misnomer to call it Calvinism because it's associated with John Calvin, um, but Calvin was not the only one who subscribed to this. There were many other reformers who subscribed to this, basically argued that the will is bound. We have free choice, but we do not have free will. All right? Free choice. In other words, we make our choices freely, but the decisions we make are influenced by the desires of our hearts. And if our hearts are corrupt, even though we make our choices freely, whatever choices we make, they're going to be what? They're going to be sinful choices because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Now, I think it's unfair to say that all Baptists are Arminians. That's not true. Actually, John Piper is a Baptist, and he is a Calvinist. And the same thing was true for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Mm -hmm. Spurgeon was a Baptist, but he was Reformed. Both of these men subscribe to a doctrine of election. And even Arminians subscribe to a doctrine of election. It's just that they have a different understanding of the doctrine of election. So it's, it's really um, a mischaracterization um, to say that Baptists are Arminians and um, Presbyterians are not. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so you know, it's interesting. Um, two of the great evangelists of the 18th century uh, were John Wesley and um, George Whitfield. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley was an Arminian. And uh, the story goes uh, that on one occasion, and they were friends. Uh, initially, they started off. In fact, Wesley was instrumental in Whitfield's conversion. Um, Whitfield went on to become the greater of the preacher. Wesley, I think, is probably more famous today because he founded the Methodist denomination. But there's a wonderful story that's humorous about this, that the story goes that they were both preaching in the same town, and they um, were staying at the same inn. And in those days, of course, you know, you had a common room 
people slept in the same room. So after a day of preaching, Wesley had been out preaching, Whitfield had been out preaching, they're both preaching the gospel, both men of God. And the story goes that they were getting ready for bed, and Whitfield got down next to his bed, and he prayed a very brief prayer. He thanked God for the opportunity to preach the gospel, and he was so thankful that God had used the preaching of the word to call those whom he had chosen. And with that, he said, amen, climbed into bed. Wesley, who was an Arminian, who felt that really it was up to him, that if he didn't preach the word, nobody was going to be saved. He was just pouring himself out, praying and praying by the side of his bed, and he was going on and on, and Wesley couldn't believe it. I mean, Whitfield couldn't believe it. He thought, wow, this is really devotion. But eventually, he drifted off to sleep. He woke up about three hours later and looked over, and Wesley was still kneeling beside his bed. Whitfield was astonished by this. He couldn't believe it. And, and he, he walked across the room. He just he wanted to hear what Wesley was saying. And when he got across the room, he heard snoring. <laughs> Wesley had fallen asleep there by his bedside. And Whitfield just tapped him and Wesley fell over. And he woke up. And Whitfield said, ah, Master Wesley, I see where your Arminianism gets you the same place that it got me, except I got there before you. <laughs> so I, I, I think, you know, what Arminians believe is that we have that free will. Um, what Calvinists hold is that the Bible teaches that we have free choice, but our will is bound in sin and nature's night, and God has to make us alive. And then we freely choose Christ, but we freely chosen Christ. Why? because we who were dead have been made alive again. That's what Lewis is describing in his conversion. He said, I was presented with a choice. It seemed to me to be a wholly free choice. But now as I look back over the course of it, I realized everything was so orchestrated that I was brought to the point, how could I have done anything else? And I think this is the great mystery of salvation. This is the great mystery of salvation. And one of the things I like to say to people who struggle with the doctrine of election is this. We don't want election for ourselves. We want the ability to choose. But let me tell you something. We, don't want the we, we certainly want the doctrine of election when it comes to our children, don't we? How many of you have ever prayed for the salvation of your children, and you've said, God, give them free will to do whatever they want? Most of you have said, I don't care what it takes, Lord. I don't care what you have to, free will be damned. I want you to go ahead and save them. I don't care what you have to do. I want you to bring them into a saving relationship with your son. See, we want free will for ourselves, but when it comes to those we love, whose lives and souls we think are in peril, we want God to do whatever is necessary. We want him to exercise his sovereign will over them. Now, I don't want you to get bogged down in this. This is meant to be a doctrine of encouragement. If you go to the back of the Book of Common Prayer, you'll find the 39 Articles of Religion. And the longest of the doctrines, the longest of the Articles of Religion deals with the doctrine of predestination and election. And it refers to that as a doctrine of pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort. Here's the good news. Those who are not elect don't know they're elect. They're not elect. There's a mercy in that. Those who are only know that. Why? Because God brought them to that saving knowledge and you embraced him. You've made your calling and election sure. And the great encouragement that you have is that because God has chosen you and he always finishes what he starts, nothing, nothing's ever going to separate you from his love. You may think, well, what if I really mess things up at some point in my life? You may mess things up at some point in your life. But still, there is nothing, not even you yourself can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the message that Paul is making here. So do we share the gospel? Absolutely, we share the gospel. We share the gospel because God has commanded us to share the gospel. It is the means by which he calls his own. But we must never think that we contribute anything to the process of salvation, save the sin from which we need to be redeemed. It is all of grace. Amazing grace 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's a bit of a mystery, but it is a message of comfort and encouragement to those who believe. We'll have an opportunity to flesh this out more as we go through the epistle to the Philippians and other places. One last question here. What is it, Rachel? Okay, Elizabeth, Scott. Uh, actually, it's a point of clarification. I was so busy taking notes. When you were okay. talking about the, uh, that the Bible, when we were children of wrath, that the Bible does not teach we are all children of God. I'm Correct. not sure I got, you said, but it does teach did you say we are all members of the human race? I'm not sure I got that down correctly. Is that what you said? Yes. Um, we okay. are all by nature creatures of God. Oh, creatures of God. That's what it was. Okay. We're all creatures of God, yes. Okay. Made in his image and exalted above the animals. Yeah. But, okay. But if you've got your Bibles, just go back to the beginning of John's gospel for just a second, and you'll see okay. what I'm talking about. The very beginning of John's gospel, it's that wonderful prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read this at Christmas every year. But if you look at verse 9, you have these words, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12 is the critical verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay. The implication being that they were not up to this point. He okay. gave them the right to become children of God who were born, reborn, what? Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thank you. Okay, makes sense? Yes, thank you. Okay, very good. This is just a, one of the things that is challenging for us as we go back and look at the scriptures. Many of the assumptions that we have have to be corrected, and that's one of them. So deep stuff, but good stuff nevertheless. It will expand your mind if it doesn't blow your mind in the process. Well, thank you, folks. It's been great being with you today. We're 10 minutes over. God bless you. I love you, and I hope to see you soon. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy, and it is all of grace. We know that you chose us because, well, we'd never have chosen you, but you are gracious and merciful to us, and so we give you thanks, and we pray that you will finish what you have started in our lives that we might be fruitful people for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.